welcome, adventurers. Outside a warehouse in Forum Poor, Mela's memories have drifted back to her first meeting with Colborn. Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents. Tales from the Dungeon. She woke with a start, scrambling to stand, dagger drawing. Blue energy sparkled at her fingertips. Where was... Easy, lass, Colborn called from the bed where he sat. At some point in the early morning, he must have moved up to the bed. Sarkeesian was in a crouch, a pace away from where she had slept. It was her hand that had startled Mela awake. The dark-skinned woman seemed unconcerned by her violent awakening, pursing her lips in appraisal. When it was clear that Mela had settled, reorienting herself to her surroundings, Sarkeesian stood. God, she made Mela feel tiny. She was fully dressed now in dark leather trousers and a padded tunic of forest green. She wore a sword at her side with an easy grace. You're quick, she said in an even tone, then frowned. Dirty as a stable, but quick. I told you, Colborn responded, working to pull the darkened metal armor over what Mela could now see to be his withered legs. And she's quite impressive with the magics as well. He paused in his effort to wiggle his fingers in Sarkeesian's direction. Any of that cleaning magic, perhaps? She asked Mela directly. Mela flushed, then shook her head no. I can have a bath brought up. Would you like that? Mela shook her head frantically no. I won't throw you in a lake, dear, Sarkeesian said calmly. She put her hand on her hip. Could we start with a basin of hot water to wash your face and hands? After a moment, Mela, to her own surprise, spoke. Okay. Colborn, please go down and ask the keep for a basin of hot water to be sent up. Right here, he replied, hopping off the bed, wiggling to make sure the metal legs fit, adjusted a buckle, and then turned to Mela. He'll be okay here with Sarkeesian. It was both a question and a statement at the same time. Mela looked to him, then to Sarkeesian, then back to him and nodded. Yes, you will, he said in a chipper reassurance before moving out the door with his odd, metered stride. As soon as he left, Sarkeesian went to a chest at the foot of the bed where she slept and opened it. She removed the hairbrush, closed the chest, and then sat on top. Clasping the brush in her hands, she smiled, then held up the brush wordlessly. Mela felt a pang. That pesky trust thing seemed to be spreading beyond her control. Realizing for the first time that she still grasped her dagger in hand, she gazed down on it in embarrassment. Keep it in hand, dear. It will help us build trust, Sarkeesian said, gesturing to the spot on the floor in front of her. Mela felt more embarrassed but did bring the dagger as she made her way to the chest. Trust, Mela thought. She looked at Sarkeesian a moment before turning around and sitting on the floor. Sarkeesian reached gently out to get a feel for the state of her hair. She tisked and humphed for a while. This may hurt a bit, Mela, but that will be what it will be. Just know I am trying to undo what time 
and dirt have done. I'd also appreciate a warning if you feel the need to stab me. A sound escaped Mela that she had not heard in years. She clapped a hand over her mouth in disbelief. A laugh. She had laughed. Sarkeesian gave a low chuckle as well, before saying, Now, let's see if I can tame this beast. It had taken quite an effort. It had hurt at times. Mela had dropped the dagger once to prevent stabbing Sarkeesian. But in the end, the work was done. After combing it out, Sarkeesian had braided the thick brown hair into two strands, tying the ends with bits of leather cord. The basin of water had been delivered, and Mela washed her hands and face. The water was a very dark shade of brown when she finished, but Sarkeesian made no comment. Looking at her with a smile, the tall woman had said, Much better. And then after consideration, Some of Rianok's things should fit you well enough for now, until we go shopping later today and buy you some clothes of your own. Mela was terrified as they descended the stairs to the common room, horrified that patrons would look at her and demand she be thrown out. Misfit, freak, street scum. But no one other than Colborn even lifted their head. Sarkeesian led her to the group, who sat at the end of a large table, eating a late breakfast. Across from Colborn, there was another dwarf with a thick brown beard, braided and forked, who wore brown leathers. His nose was very similar to Colborn's, and they had the same yellow-flecked brown eyes. Next to him was the rest of what had been attached to the red hair the night before. A young halfling woman with freckled cheeks and eyes so deep blue they bordered on purple. She wore a black vest over a gray linen shirt and stared curiously at Mela as they approached. You know Colborn, but let me introduce you to his brother, Colfin. The dwarf with the forked beard nodded with a grunt. And this is Rianok, she said, indicating the halfling, who, with no offered hand or greeting, replied. You wear my shirt. Mela tensed, face flushing. Sarkeesian sighed and rolled her eyes. Pay her no mind. Please sit. Colborn patted the bench beside him. Mela made her way around the table and sat down, placing her hands under her thighs. It was so strange to be out in broad daylight, to be among people. Her insides buzzed with an overload of noise and motion. She didn't know where to look. She settled for looking at the people with whom she sat. First she looked to Colfin. He chewed noisily on a bit of meat. Then Colborn, who was reading a parchment of some sort while sipping occasionally from a mug of something that steamed. Next, Rianok who was staring back at her, face scrunched up in consideration. Mela looked quickly away, uncomfortable with the attention. Sarkeesian was neatly filling up a wood plate. A few slices of meat, a hunk of bread, a bit of cheese. Taking out a dagger, she cut the last apple sitting on the table in half and placed it on the plate. Mela's stomach growled loudly. She looked down, face flushing. A small clunk, and then the plate was set before her. She looked up in disbelief. Sarkeesian was looking at her. Eat up, you must be quite hungry. Mela's eyes widened. The food was for her? It couldn't be. Come, child, before Colfin finishes his and moves on to yours. Mela's eyes darted to Colfin, who let out a grunt, then back to Sarkeesian, who nodded. Slowly, 
as if she was trying to catch a cricket. She lifted her hand to the plate, picking up the bread. Saliva rushed into her mouth. She took a bite, eyes closing. It wasn't stale. It wasn't moldy. It was soft and still warm. It was the best thing she had ever eaten. As it hit her stomach, she realized how hungry she was, how hungry she had been for the last ten years. She fell on the plate, stuffing food into her mouth with one hand and then the other. When she was done, she looked up, bits of cheese and apple still clinging to her face. She eats like a pig, Rianox said. Mela froze. Sarkeesian slapped the back of the halfling's head with an open hand. A rare smile split Colfin's brown beard, a low chuckle following. Colborn choked on whatever he was drinking, spraying it across the table, hitting both Sarkeesian and Rianok before he could get a hand over his mouth. Colfin's chuckle turned into a deep belly laugh. And that was the first meal Bela ever shared with her family. Mela, Colborn called. No need to enjoy the sky right now. We have work to do. Colfin also stood just inside the door, bow still in hand. He waved for them to enter, even as Sarkeesian's voice could be heard calling. Is everything all right out there? The path they took into the building wound and weaved between large stacked crates. They passed the body of three dispatched ruffians as they walked, two humans and a half-elf. The second two still had arrows protruding from them. Colfin, who Mela now saw, bled from a cut on his upper arm, kicked the second human as they passed, letting out an irritated grunt. Colfin led them to an office at the north end of the warehouse. Sarkeesian stood with her sword drawn, next to a man who Rianok was just finishing binding to a chair. The halfling hummed a cheery tune, the hints of a smile on her face, as she pulled the last knot on the man's wrists. Very tight. When Mela had joined them six months back, they had been on their way to Cumbershall to help the local militia with a horse-thieving ring they were having trouble with. Sarkeesian was doing it as a favor for a friend and fellow veteran of the Knoll Wars. In a little less than a month's time, they had broken up the ring. Questions asked had found that the band of thieves answered to a woman named Jerusala, who conducted business out of where else. Feld's Crossing. They had returned to Feld's Crossing and reported their findings to the city's ruling council. The council was concerned with this mysterious figure. Sarkeesian had agreed, with very little urging, to take up the task of finding out more about Jerusalem and keeping the council informed. Two months of carefully placed questions and following numerous false leads had led to the conclusion that Jerusalem was not an actual woman, but an invented figurehead used to run a network of spies and thieves that extended beyond the city of Feld's Crossing. The trail had gone cold at that point. Though she did not say, Mela could see that the loose end bothered Sarkeesian a great deal. Over the next two months, they had taken various jobs. They had fought off a boulette that had been terrorizing local farmers, took work as caravan guards to protect a priceless magic item on its way to Borgen. In Borgen, they were paid to retrieve a noble son who had gone messing in search of wealth and riches in some old ruins in the Shalshali Mountains. It was after that, in a pub in the Shadow District, that they had been caught in a bar brawl. 
Rianok and Colfin insisted they had nothing to do with starting it, but Sarkeesian was ever doubtful. A woman had been stabbed and killed during the altercation. Sarkeesian had driven off the attacker who fled into the streets. No one could believe what followed. An inspection of the body had uncovered a letter sewn inside a hidden pocket. It was brief and to the point. I have need of Jerusalem. Meet me at the warehouse in Forempur. After two months of nothing, they had stumbled onto a lead. And that brought them to where they were now. At the one of nearly a hundred warehouses in Forempur that had taken almost a month to find. The one in the letter. The desk had been pushed to one side of the office. The bound man in the chair sat in the center. Colfin leaned against the door jamb facing out. Colborn had hopped up on the desk rubbing his thighs. Mela took up position on the wall opposite Colborn, back to the wall, arms crossed. Sarkeesian paced back and forth in front of the prisoner. Rianok stood directly in front of the man, staring with a grim smile, a dagger in hand. Occasionally she would mutter something to herself and then poke one of the man's knees with a dagger, just hard enough to sting. The man wriggled when she did, but only from reflex. His face was drawn into a stony mask. It was clear he had no intention of telling them anything. A few bars passed in this manner before Sarkeesian stopped. She reached out her sword under his chin, raising it up until he looked back into her eyes. To the surprise of no one, we have some questions, her sword moving in to touch the man's neck. He showed no fear. There is nothing you can do to me that would not be revisited upon me tenfold worse if I tell you anything. Do as you wish. I will not talk. Sarkeesian held his gaze a moment longer before dropping her sword. I believe you. And then starting to pace again. Rianok? The smile on the halfling's face widened. The man looked dubiously down at Rianok. Rianok sheathed the dagger and patted the man on one knee. She began to hum, fingers forming intricate patterns, shifting and signing. After a few beats of this, the man's eyes began to get a far-off look. He shook his head a few times, as if trying to shake off drowsiness, and then he looked to Rianok, smiling. Rianok stopped. It's so good to see you again. Wilton, the man replied. Of course, Wilton. How could I forget? And then, placing her hand on her chest. Rianok, I know you, Rianok. How could I forget my dear old friend? Truly, and well said, the halfling said, fingers beginning to work again. I need your help, Wilton. And then whispering. I'm afraid you might be in trouble. She finished with the hand movement and spoke a few quick words. Welton's eyes widened. In trouble? As a worried look settled on his face, Sarkeesian had stopped pacing. All except Colfin stared intently at the man in the chair, who realized for the first time he was tied up. Rianok, why am I tied up? For your safety and ours, I'm afraid. See, your boss is quite bad, and I think you know that. What you don't know is they've been controlling your mind making you behave this way. The look of concern deepened. What can I do? Your boss, what was his name again? You told me once, but I can't recall. Enganar. Enganar, yeah, that's it. 
We are worried that Engenar may not be the top of the line, you see. That possibly there is someone even higher. Beads of sweat formed on Wilton's head, his worry beginning to tinge with fear. We are here to help, Wilton. I know you are afraid, but we need this information if we're going to help save you from his evil influence. Wilton leaned forward. I'm not supposed to know. Rianok reached up to place a hand gently on his cheek. It's all right, Wilton. Be brave. Wilton was visibly shaking now. I don't think Anganar is human. I could have swore I saw him change once into a strange, bluish creature. Rianok looked on, nodding confidently for him to continue. He was talking into a box or something. It gave off a bluish light. A voice came out of the box, and he called it. The voice inside, he called it Master. Master? No other name? I wasn't supposed to see it. I only listened for a moment. If he knew I had, I would be. Rianok shushed Welton quietly. Can you describe Engadar to us? Welton did. Anything else? Any markings or scars? No matter how small. Welton's panic had subsided some. He considered. There is. On his left hand, he had a tattoo. A green bug of some sort. Could you draw it for us? I could try. They unbound his hands and provided a scrap of parchment and charcoal from the desk. Wilton scrunched his face in concentration, marking, then crossing out, then marking again. Finally, he looked up with a shrug. Best I can do. Rianok looked at the parchment and then turned around, holding it up. Sarkeesian looked and then shook her head. Rianok turned to Colborn. After looking for but a moment, he looked up and to the side, focusing on nothing in particular, stroking his beard. After nearly a bar, he hopped down to the floor and walked to Rianok, taking the scrap of paper, looking hard at it again, then up to Sarkeesian. It reminds me of the glyphs used by the old tribes in the glass sea. The Asua, I think. They use symbols as a form of writing. This here looks like a desert beetle. A scarab, I think they call it. Sarkeesian took the parchment and held it up, memorizing the shape. Then, as much to herself as anyone else, said, A green scarab. Another thread to pull at. Mela and her companions have found the beginning of a trail. A trail that will take them on a dangerous and thrilling adventure. Here ends the stories of Season 2. Join me next week for some insight on D&D 5th Edition and how it affected the stories of Season 2. Hello, listener. Are you a fan of Tales from the Dungeon? Want early access to episode releases, character sheets, maps, and more? Please consider becoming a patron of the show. Join the other adventurers that help make Tales from the Dungeon a reality and become a patron today at www.patreon.com forward slash speaking stone studio. All one word, all lowercase. That's www.patreon.com 
www.patreon.com forward slash speaking stone studio. Join today and keep the adventure alive.